Welcome to another message from the teaching team at Elevation Church Australia. For more information about our church, service times and locations, visit elevationchurch.com.au. Hey, let's keep it going for these guys. The mum and dad are back in the house together. What a great way to spend Valentine's Day, having mum and dad back. Who loves Pastor Miles and Bonnie? Oh, we can make more noise. Who loves Pastor Miles and Bonnie? Thanks. Thank you guys for your sacrifice week in, week out, and in the week when we call you with all our problems. <laughs> well, we're going to get straight into it. Um, thank you for being here on Valentine's Day. My name's Prashan, and as Pastor Miles said, we, my wife and I are on team here. Thank you for joining online. Uh, as you can probably not tell, we can see each other's faces, which is awesome. Hey, smile at the person next to you because now that's not weird. You can't just see their eyes. Why don't you smile at them, make them feel welcome. If you're watching online, you need to be here in the room. It is special. So we're going to get straight into it. And it's a message that I prepared this week and wrestled with. Uh, So I hope you wrestle with it too. Take notes. I really encourage you to take notes because there's a lot in it. But we'll get straight into it. Turn with me to Luke 15 verses 1 to 7. If you don't have your Bible, it will be on the screen behind us. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So let me just take a step back and paint a picture for you. In the chapter before this, we read that Jesus is actually addressing his disciples. And he's talking to them about something called the cost of the core the cost of the call. What that is for us as believers, it's the burden that we have to wear as we walk closely with Jesus. There's a burden. And Jesus is talking to His disciples saying, hey, if you want to follow me, it's going to be hard. It's going to be raw. It's going to be all encompassing. He actually says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, You cannot be my disciple. Imagine Jesus standing here where I am today, proclaiming this truth, saying, if you want to follow me today, you need to leave everything you have and follow me wholehearted. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to be okay to leave your families behind, to be okay to leave your kids or your spouse or your well-paying job or even, you know, your PlayStation 5, if that's what's important to you. Imagine Jesus standing here and saying that. It's a controversial command. It's actually really controversial because we know that we are meant to give everything to Him and we know that He wants all of our lives. But Jesus doesn't want us to just know about Him. He wants us to know Him. And the conversation keeps going and we read that Jesus starts talking about food. Who here is a foodie like me? Love a bit of food. And He starts saying, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is of no use and it will be thrown away. You know, uh, I remember when, when I was in my first year of marriage, um, we were really excited to uh, cook for each other. And me being, you know, the pro-amateur chef, pro-amateur, you know, that's the title that I'll take. Um, I wanted to cook a really good meal for my wife. And I'm not saying I don't cook for her anymore. It's just I don't get the chance to. And I remember, you know, we had this amazing pasta dish lined up. And if anyone is a pro amateur chef like I am, you know that to make good pasta, you need to salt the water. Yeah, anyone else know that? Great, we've got some chefs in the building. 
And so what I did is I grabbed the nearest grinder and, you know, I was going to town on that thing. I was getting as much flavouring in this water because if you know Italians, a lot of Italians say the best pasta will be made in the water that tastes like the sea. So really salty, right? So I'm just going to town, you know, grinding as much as I can into this pot and I set it to boil and I throw the pasta in and I'm just thinking, you know, once Paige tastes this, she's really going to see why she wants to spend the rest of her life with me. Like it's going to be really, it's going to be good. And I sat down and there was an expectation and I was just watching her face as she took the first bite and um, I thought she would look at me in love. Uh, It wasn't love um, because then I tasted it and instead of tasting a good tasting pasta, it felt like I'd been punched in the face with spice. So I'd grabbed the pepper grinder instead of the salt grinder and peppered, overly peppered may I add, the water. Now, she still allows me to cook for her, which is great. But Jesus was talking about something similar. He said, if we aren't like the salt that we're called to be in this world, if we don't add something distinct that changes our world, then there is no use for for what we do. We actually become like those around us who have yet to taste and see the glory of God. And He asks these disciples, what distinguishes you in your world? What sets you apart? You know, if we're believers of Jesus, we need to ask ourselves that question. What changes when I walk back into my world after leaving the body of Christ on a Sunday? Do I add something distinct? Do I add something different? Or do I just exist? Because if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, this in itself is a strong message for us to hear. And I haven't even started with the parable we're going to talk about. But we just have to picture that Jesus is standing here with this strong message. He's he's, he's talking to the disciples in the middle of the street. And then he starts seeing some Pharisees and some some teachers of the law gathering on one side, looking at him as if he's just slapped them in the face with this new truth. But then we also read that there's a, a group of people who are gathering and growing on the other side. The Pharisees say it's the sinners and it's the tax collectors. And what that shows me is that it's okay to speak the truth of God in our workplace. We need to throw out the notion and the idea that we can't tell the truth about the Word of God to people who don't know the Gospel. Because this shows me that the truth of God actually attracts those who need it the most. The truth of God attracts people who need it the most and convict those who think they don't need it. See, the gospel is one message we as Christians should be preaching at all times, whether that's with words or actions. So we see these tax collectors and sinners, all those who were looked at as the lowest of the low in Jewish society, gathering around Jesus and hearing Him speak. And they're all attracted to this hard teaching of Jesus. And Jesus was sitting and eating with them. And this is what the Pharisees says, look at this man receiving sinners and he eats with them. Essentially what they were saying was in Jewish culture, if you ate something with someone, you were expecting, sorry, you were accepting their way of life. So the Pharisees were saying, look at this man, how he accepts these people who we shun, who we turn away. And you know, one of the biggest mistakes that we as Christ followers sometimes, which I believe actually stops us from sharing the good news of Jesus, is that we can get to a place of self-righteousness and spiritual pride. We can get to a place where we start catching ourselves judging people who we don't really know or we don't know their story, but we start judging them based on what they do or what they say or what they look like 
instead of actually seeing that they were created in the image of God, in image of God just as much as we were. Sometimes we take a higher ground because we think that we are better because we know our Saviour. But the truth of the matter is we're no better. He is better than our flesh. He's the one who's come in and changed our spiritual man. The truth of the matter is while we're new inside, we're still living in a physically dying body. We're still living in a broken flesh. And Paul talks about it in the Colossian church. And he says, put to death what is earthly in you. Meaning that our flesh still tied to the earth. It's still tied to the things of the world, which is why we talk, we're here in the Bible. It says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we as Christians will never have a heart fully sold out for others to meet Jesus until we put to death our fleshly thinking. We are called to discern using the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and not judge using our own high expectations of others. See, Jesus saw the people He was with before dealing with their sin. He saw who He was going to die for before what He had to bear. As believers, we need to too get to the point where we can see people as Jesus saw them, as created by Him, as who they are right now and who they were created to be and not what they can do to get better. Because, that, uh, because we know that we can't do anything that you know, we can to change someone, only Jesus can. Only Jesus can and we have to show that to them. There's nothing we can do. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16 says, "For God so loved the world, everyone will know this, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Whosoever believeth in him shall never perish but have eternal life." And uh, you may have noticed I slipped into the KJV uh, translation of that because that's the one I was taught as a child. Um, but for God so loved the world that He sent His one and only begotten Son, which means that God loves you so much that He said, sent His Son for you. What that also means is God loves your neighbour just as much as He loves you. What this also means is God loves that person at work that you don't love <laughs> just as much as He loves you. God loved Judas who betrayed Jesus just as much as He loves you. But the thing I've learnt in reading the Scripture now more than ever is that I marvel at our God being a paradoxical God. What do I mean by paradoxical? It means that God is both sides on the same coin. Because we read this Scripture, John 3.16, and we see the heart of God and His love for us. But within this Scripture, we also need to realise that God so loved the world, but He so hated the sin in it. He so loved the world, but He so hated what the world had become. There's two sides of God. He so hated the brokenness in the world and the fractured relationship between humanity and Him. You know, Jesus, when He sat with the sinners and the, and the tax collectors, He so loved the people He was with, but He knew that there was more for them. John 3.16 is a verse we often quote to show God's love, but the incredible verse, there's actually a truth that's really spoken about, that God gave His Son to die for all of humanity because He hated what sin had made the world become. And we forget that when we look at the cross, we can see His heart that loved humanity so much that He sent His Son to die for us, but we can also see 
the sin that was taken because he hated it so much. See, God looked at his original plan in that humanity was created by God, for God, to live in an eternal relationship with God. And he saw this plan and he saw how much humanity had moved from it. So it made me think, have you ever thought that the Gospel is more about relationship than it is about salvation? That the Gospel, the good news of Jesus is more about a relationship, that the plan initially was that we will spend eternity in relationship with God and the plan will always be to spend eternity in relationship with God. So it's more about relationship than it is about salvation. And salvation is the gateway to that. It's the turning point in our life where we choose to follow Jesus. We choose to come back in relationship with Him. Everything in between is just an addition to it. You know, when God created Adam and Eve and He he created them to live and and work alongside Him, now it was not in God's plan for, for them to eat of the fruit. It was not in God's plan for them to be pushed out of the Garden of Eden to to, to really work the ground. It was not in God's plan for the people of God in the Old Testament to continuously fall away from Him, even though He was chasing them. God did not plan these things to happen, but He did prepare for them. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of all men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and that's Jesus and He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And what this tells me is that Jesus always was and until He returns will always be the answer to God's, uh, to, to humanity's problem really. Jesus is the only answer that's going to restore this relationship between the Father and His creation. And, and so we, there's nothing we can do that can change that. There's nothing we can do. If we know Jesus is our Lord and Saviour today, there's nothing we can do that will change that. There's nothing you may have done you know, last night. There's nothing that you will do tomorrow that's going to change the love that God has for you now through Jesus, through His Son. So we continue to read with Luke 15 and we're going to break it down into three distinct parts to really understand it. So come back with me to Luke 15 verse 3. Jesus is telling them this parable. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So we start this parable with Jesus talking to the Pharisees about ownership. He says, what man of you, if you owned a hundred sheep, would not leave the 99 to find one if it was lost? See, Jesus is trying to make the Pharisees see like he saw. Because the Pharisees were quite happy with what they owned. You know, they had the temples They had people who looked like them, who walked like them, who spoke like them, who kept the law like them. They were quite happy with the ownership of sheep they had. They didn't need to. They were very happy to relegate the responsibility of the sinners and the tax collectors because they weren't their sheep. And Jesus is saying, what man of you, if you have a hundred sheep, would not leave the flock to, to, to chase the one? 
He's trying to sell the Pharisees. It's not just about the people in this building. It's not just about the people in the temple who can uphold the law and who can uh, perform sacrifices. See, Jesus knew that the Father had created all things. He'd created the people in the temple, the Pharisees and, and all those who taught the law, and He'd created the people who He was sitting with at the time. He knew that God had created them and that they, they belonged to God. They were, the ownership, they were under the ownership of God in a physical sense. But Jesus actually also knew a theological truth that when He would die on the cross, God would pass the ownership of all people to Jesus. Think of it as an artist, because this is a big theological uh, topic and I've learnt this this week and I still don't know the answer to it. But think of it like this, because this is how it sounds like to me. We have a YA in our church, a young adult, who is a great artist and he makes sculptures. Now, he works really hard on pieces of art. Some can take three hours, some can take three months, some can take a year. And, And for him, from the first time his paintbrush hits the canvas, or from the first time he bends some wire to form the framework of a sculpture, he owns that piece of art. He's putting his heart, his soul, his emotions, his vision, his dreams, he's putting it all into a piece of art that really just encapsulates what he thinks this should look like. Now, when someone comes along and sees this piece of art and falls in love with it and starts seeing the value within it, they would do anything possible They would pay as much as they needed to, to secure this piece of artwork. And in that purchase, the ownership moves from the the creator to the one who's paid the price. Right? So this is what Jesus is saying. Before He's betrayed and crucified, He actually prays to the Father saying, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave me out of the world. Yours they were and You gave them to me and they have kept Your word. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is saying that who the Father had from the time of creation was about to become His, once he, once he completed his mission, once he died on the cross for those who he came to die for. So, you know, when we read this parable about the lost sheep, we need to start moving away from the idea that this parable is solely for us on how to reach the lost. And the word lost is the word apolos, which implies permanent destruction or to be lost by experiencing a miserable end. So while reaching the lost, it actually has to be a really important part of our spiritual walk, this parable, like most parables told, was told to the audience not to instruct them in a better way of life. Like Jesus wasn't talking to the Pharisees saying, hey, this is how you're meant to do this. This is how you're meant to share the gospel. You have to sit with sinners and you have to sit with the tax collectors. No, Jesus isn't, isn't saying a directive. And this is why we shouldn't look at this as a directive. Because parables, and Jesus used parables for some, some amazing, amazing uh, causes. But some, some of these reasons are parables were used to hide the imagery of the kingdom of God. But they were also used to reveal the awe and wonder of the glory of God. 
So when we read this parable with fresh eyes, looking at it through the lens of Jesus talking to the Pharisees, we, we see that he's suggesting that evangelism is less about the method and more about the message. It's less about the method, it's less about how we do it and more about why. Evangelism is, is not just about some people completing what they feel like God's calling them to do through our outreach ministry. Evangelism is not just for some people who feel like they're called to share the gospel. You know, evangelism is not even just for extroverts. The Bible is very, very clear that it, it's, 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 you know, because let me, let me just say right now, and I said it this morning, but I am not the preacher. Just because I have a mic and I'm on the platform, I am not the preacher. You are the preachers because you all have amazing platforms in your lives. You know, I'm called to equip the saints for the ministry and for building up the body of Christ. Now you are called to share the gospel and to have these conversations with people. Evangelism is for everyone. We have to, we have to never forget that you have the greatest news the world is ever going to see that's lying within you. Sharing the good news is for everyone who calls themselves a believer of Christ. And it's not because we read this parable and we see a framework of how to do it. It's because we read this parable and we see the heart of Jesus, that He would leave the flock to come down for us who were once lost, that He would leave heaven to put on flesh and become an example for us, that He would leave and die on the cross so that we could be made right with our Father, our Creator. This is the heart of Jesus in this parable. And the parable goes on to say in verse 5, When he had found it, which is the lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. You know, Jesus says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, Jesus bore our sins on the cross so that He could bear us on His shoulders. Jesus bore the sins of the world on the cross so that He could pick us up and see that we were lost and bear us on His shoulders. You know, it's interesting that this parable that Jesus talks about, He doesn't say that the shepherd found the sheep and then asked it to follow Him back to the flock. Or He doesn't say that He led the sheep back to the flock. He doesn't even say that He used the staff or some equipment to get the sheep out and pull it back to the flock. The Bible says that Jesus took, he picked up the sheep, put it on his shoulders and took it home rejoicing. And you know, if Jesus is your saviour, I want you to know this, in this imagery of you, of the sheep being on Jesus's shoulders, there's an imagery of rest. There's an imagery of just letting go of anything that we need to try to do to get better with God. And there's a call to realise that we just need to rest in our Saviour, that everything was done on the cross for us. Everything we do, you know, Paul talks about working out, outworking the good works within us. That's actually to make us bring heaven to earth. We are not, we are not getting any better. So there's an imagery of rest when the shepherd picks up the sheep and puts it on his shoulders. And, and, and he, the interesting thing is, he carries us and He cares for us and He celebrates us, but He doesn't take us back to the flock. 
It says the shepherd takes the sheep back home, which shows me more about God's heart, that He's more about an ongoing relationship with Him than just salvation. For Him, it's not just about finding that sheep and saving it. It's about finding that sheep and caring for it. And and it makes me think, this is the Gospel, but have we separated the act of evangelism and discipleship? In our lives, have we compartmentalised? Have we separated and said, look, evangelism's one part of it and that's for those who can preach, that's for those who can share the Gospel well and discipleship is for those people who, you know, who like doing the the one-on-one conversations. It's the extroverts sharing the Gospel and it's the introverts doing discipleship. Have we done that in our lives? Because I read the Gospel and I say evangelism goes, evangelism and discipleship go hand in hand. Because if we aren't going to do both, we're either going to get some Christians who are quite superficial in their faith, who don't move from spiritual milk to spiritual meat, or we're going to get some people who are in really good relationships with others, but just have no spiritual foundation. Evangelism and discipleship go hand in hand. We can't wait for the programs that we're creating as the church to do it for us. We can't wait for Graham and Marge, our life group directors, to do it for us. We can't wait for Sanjeev and Jocelyn, our outreach directors, to share the Gospel for us. We need to take responsibility for it today. We need to see that evangelism and discipleship go hand in hand. Because Jesus' last instructions to His disciples in Mark were go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. And in Matthew, they go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the Name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We see that evangelism and discipleship are two sides of a coin that we hold in our hands. And it brings us back to the cost of the call that Jesus was talking about in the last chapter. Because so often we're, we're okay to share the Gospel with someone in the workplace, but we're not okay to do the journey with them. You know, so often it's easy for us to share the good news, but will shirk away from doing a lifelong journey, helping them become more like Christ. This is the cost of the call. Evangelism is not a KPI. It's not, you know, I'm going to go out and talk to six people about Jesus this week. Salvation even is not the end goal. It's the relationship with God that's being restored. That's what He wants to see. And, you know, we read in verse 7, it says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. The lost, as we spoke about in Greek, it means to be eternally dead. He came to give the dead life. And this is why there's joy in heaven, because heaven's rejoicing that there's going to be more people alive with Christ for the rest of eternity. You know, I've often read this parable and, and I've seen myself as a bit of the Pharisee, to be honest. I've often read this parable and I've seen myself on the hill, the 99 who didn't need to, to repent, who didn't need righteousness. who was just happy uh, being there in the wilderness, you know, doing my own thing. And I can tell you the Pharisees were definitely seeing themselves as, as that, which is why Jesus was painting this picture for them. But what challenged me and I hope what challenges you today was have you ever thought of yourself as the one lost sheep? Have you ever seen yourself as that one lost sheep? Because if we call ourselves believers of Christ today, 
And if we've never seen ourselves as that one lost sheep, then we will never realise that we were once lost and that Jesus has scooped us up, placed us on His shoulders and continues to hold us there. If we didn't have Him, we would be just as lost as that sheep. We would be just as lost as anyone else in our lives we know who doesn't have Jesus. It is a continual holding of us that Jesus has. You know, Jesus bore us on His shoulders and He continues to do so. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. For for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might live, might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Meaning that Christ's death on the cross equalised all of humanity. From one death, it says that everyone died. Billy Graham says it like this. He says, The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All humanity was placed on a level playing field. And what that tells me is Jesus came to die for our sins and that was His mission completed. And now He's given us the responsibility. He said, the ball's in your court now. I've equalised it all. I've taken the sin. I've taken the shame. I've taken everything that has held us back from being connected to the Father. Now the ball's in our court. And for you who may know Jesus today, you know, you've realised that and you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. But if you're here or if you're watching online and you don't know Jesus yet, it's not, it's not us, it's not believers and unbelievers. We're all in this together. It's all equal. It's us and Him. It's humanity and Jesus. It's humanity trying to get back to, to the place where we were created from and for. So our natural response as Christians is to step back, step back and marvel at the grace of God in our lives. That even though we were sinners, even though we were the lost sheep, we did not deserve it. That Christ came down from heaven to save us, to bear us on His shoulders and to call us sons and daughters of the Most High. Take a step back. And then our next step should be realising that without Him, even in this life, Without Him, we would still be lost. We still would have no hope. We'd still be that lost sheep. And finally, in our lives, if that does not move us, because what we have to come to is the magnitude of that in our lives, because the magnitude will help us take that next step. It'll help us see that this is the best news. This is the best news. Our lives are completely changed for eternity. And it will help us as believers step into a ministry of reconciliation that has been given to all of us. Ministry is not just for people on this platform, it's for every believer. We're in the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? It means that you are ambassadors of Christ, called to reconcile those who don't yet know Jesus to the Father through Him. We're called to preach the Gospel. We're called to allow the Holy Spirit to move and draw people near to the Father. And we're called to make strong disciples. So as we leave, let me just uh, commission you guys. You are, the, you are the kings, you are the priests, you are the, 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 the people who have the, the best news, the best message inside of you. And we can't let that go. We can't live this life without taking a step forward into the calling that has been set before us. Hey, let's pray. Why don't you stand with me?
We're going to go into some worship after this. Father, we thank You so much for the grace that You showed us on the cross, that even while we were sinners, God, You came. You sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. We, we never take that lightly. We step back, we, we see the, 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 the awe and, and the magnitude of this, Jesus. Father, we need You every day. We need You every single day as we outwork our salvation. God, I just pray right now for everyone in this building, everyone watching online who calls You their Lord and Saviour, that God, You will give them the feet of the readiness of the Gospel as they leave this building, as they leave their homes. They will, they will go out into the world, make disciples. They will preach the good news. They will bring people, Father, to You. They will see healings. They will see miracles, Father. They see, they see things broken and, and cast out because the same Spirit that raised You, Jesus, now lives in us. So Father, I pray this over them. And Father, for anyone who doesn't know Jesus right now, I thank You that Your Spirit is standing at the door of their hearts knocking, just waiting. I thank You that You equalise us all, Father. And Father, for those who don't yet know You, God, I pray for a courage, a, a supernatural courageous decision to be made right now, just between You and them, that they let You into their hearts so that You can change them for eternity. In Jesus' Name, Amen.